Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're in the presence of a man who has crossed paths with just about everybody in show business. He's helped countless and has the endurance of the Energizer Bunny. Charlie Monk is the mayor of Music Row. In his 60 years in the entertainment world, he's worn many hats, songwriter, record producer, talent manager, music publisher, radio personality. I've come to love his broadcasting on Willie's Roadhouse on Sirius XM. So it's a great pleasure to welcome this man, an inductee of the Tennessee Radio Hall of Fame and the Alabama Music Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Charlie Monk. Good day. I started to say, well, good morning or good evening, but we don't know when we will be hearing this. So I'll just say, hi, Paul. Hello, Charlie. I, I know better than to call you, sir. <laughs> yeah, you will get smacked even if we are uh, socially distanced. <laughs> so, so tell me, Charlie, I, I know you come from Geneva, Alabama. Yes, sir. Uh, there are 5,000 very happy people there. Yeah? Yep. What part, for, for the viewers out there, what part of the state's that? Well, it's uh, 36 miles south of Dothan, Alabama. It's three miles from the Florida line. As a matter of fact, I told somebody one time, when my mother was carrying me, we lived so far south. Had she stayed, taken one step backwards, I'd have been a Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I could walk to the Florida line. Oh, wow. Okay. State. Yeah. So tell me about the kind of music that you heard around the town, around your house. What, what was it? Well, it was kind of interesting. We had a, a small radio station in our hometown. Uh, but, you know, it was because uh, you come from radio. But since I started a little earlier than you did in 1956, <laughs> to say at least, uh, it was kind of block programming. So we had music was genre based, you know, it was an hour of this and an hour of that and an hour of something else. And, uh, and it was daytime only. We couldn't, we could barely get a, a, a nighttime radio station. Ironically, the two stations that we could get somewhat uh, in my hometown were two Nashville radio stations, WLAC radio, which played uh, what we called R&B or rhythm and blues music late at night because you can only catch it at about midnight and then WSM which was the, the country station at night only so I was kind of stuck with this and of course my sister was a Pentecostal preacher so I was raised in what we have referred to over the years as southern gospel music uh, leg slapping the guys in the shark skin suits high tenors and low basses and things like that uh and uh, I was raised by a stepfather who liked jazz, ironically enough. Hmm. So consequently, uh, he played when he could get the radio because we had battery radios in those days, you know, because you couldn't play. You couldn't keep the radio on 24-7. Hmm. You, you just had the radio on when you wanted what you wanted. Uh, for instance, if you wanted country music, chances are you were going to get it at five o'clock in the morning. So you listen from five to six in the morning. But my, my dad uh, 
introduced my stepdad uh, raised me, introduced me to big band music. Uh, and I ultimately became a Frank Sinatra fan who happens to be my favorite singer of all time. Uh, and, uh, and more importantly, I got interested in songs. Now, I don't play an instrument. I've tried to learn the guitar. I know three chords on the guitar and don't know in which, which way they go. But I was always interested in lyrics. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer of anything. I just like to write poetry or, you know, short stories and things like that. Uh, but uh, the great the great ballads of Sinatra and people like that. Uh, and later on, you know, I got into George Jones and Merle Haggard and, and really a student of their songs as well as enjoying their music. So uh, I did not know that I would, you know, get into the music business at some point in time in my career, but I, I started a radio station in my hometown. And so I got interested in kind of all of the showbiz. I used to read uh, movie magazines, you know, just cover to cover uh, if I could find one. And so I wanted to be an actor. God gave me wit, charm, good looks, everything except talent. Had he given me talent, I'd have been a superstar because I knew all about the rest of it. Uh, but I really wanted to be an actor. And I went out to Hollywood and I decided that, uh, you know what, I'm going to be better at touting other people than I am touting me. Uh, so all I wanted to do is be rich and famous. And so uh, um, I haven't arrived at either. <laughs> Does that answer your question? You asked me what time it was, and I told you how to make a watch, right? <laughs> Well, I don't know about not famous. I mean, I mentioned all those those Hall of Fames that you're in, but I'm curious to know, do you have any memories from the first time you spoke into a microphone and the voice of Charlie Monk went out on the airwaves? Well, I guess I don't actually remember the tonality of that, but chances are I actually started Working the radio station, sweeping the floors and cleaning the building. Uh, made $5 a week. Uh, and I had to walk uh, about five miles to get there. Uh, but I, I guess always my enthusiasm, my interest in those kind of things, that I used to, the guys would have to go to the toilet or something on the air, and they'd ask me to sit down at what was known as the board in those days and just segue records, go from one record to the other, which were, you know, on a desk kind of, we called it a board, uh, but the turntables were one on the left and one on the right, and you had mercury switches. So I started segueing one for the other, not saying any words, but I was in the studio and I could look out and see, you know, the outside. And I felt like I was already uh, the number one disc jockey in America and hadn't said a word. Uh, but later they would, you know, they let me sit in every now and then, read a commercial or something. Because you back then you read all the commercials and they were like 60 seconds. And for people listening to you that doesn't know how hard it is to read something for 60 seconds with some uh, amazing excitement, it, you can get worn out really easily in 60 seconds. Uh, so doing that and then they finally hired me to work Sunday on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoons, whenever they needed somebody. 
Uh, and it was a small town, as I said, and it was mostly preachers, but they were live. We had a little studio in front of us with a piano and people would come in and sing and preach. And uh, so I'd have to do what were known as station breaks, uh, you know, WGEA in Geneva, Alabama. And uh, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And so I guess that was the first thing I probably ever said on the radio. And it probably went, you know, 10 miles hmm. <laughs> in my hometown. But I remember that, that part. Then I became the afternoon disc jockey in my hometown and took phone calls and requests. And, uh, and then I went from there to, I went to Troy, Alabama, to the University of Troy University. It is now Troy State Teacher and got a job the first day I was there at the local radio station and became the afternoon disc jockey in a college town. I was Mr. Hot Stuff. <laughs> it's occurred to me that you have spun countless tunes over the radio uh, at different stations. You know, you were mentioning that you were a Frank Sinatra fan. Uh, I hear you all the time on, on Willie's Roadhouse and you're introducing that song or sharing a tidbit about that artist. There's always a, 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 a little story that you have, but I'm curious to know, would it be possible with all the songs that you have played and all the songs that you're familiar with, what is the Charlie Monk song? What is your favorite song? Well, it happens to be a Sinatra song. It's called All the Way. Oh, Very wow. few people have a favorite song. You'll ask them and they'll go, well, no, I like four or five. No, I have a specific song and a specific record. It's All the Way by Frank Sinatra. Written by Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen, who are my, two of my favorite writers of all time, too. And that that is a very romantic song. Yep. And it has to be one of the greatest songs ever written, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, it was in the, you know, the, the movie The Joker's Wild, with, which Frank played the lead in. Now, tell us about your move to Tennessee. Was that an experience that was exciting? What was that like for you? Well, you know, it gets confusing sometimes because uh, my wife is uh, is a very bright lady. She's a scholar. She's a Bible scholar. She's a teacher. Uh, she's a financial expert. Uh, she's truly an academic. She made one B in her entire, all of her years in college. Uh, and it, it was tough for me to try to keep it. But she really has no interest in show business. She likes theater. She likes opera. Uh, but you know, she didn't care anything about going to some honky tonk with me and sitting and listening to Conway Twitty or anybody. Uh, but Nashville, because uh, some of the magazines that I read, Billboard magazine, which is probably the most popular uh, music magazine, had a segment on Nashville or you know a weekly segment, and then Nashville had two or three magazines that I got in the mail. I read a lot about Nashville and again, particularly the songwriters. And there was a period of time where uh, Nashville writers and singers, Marty Robbins, Jim Reeves, you know, those, the Everly brothers, uh, Dottie West, I could go on and on and on Dolly. They became pop icons. They would, Marty Robbins would have El Paso, which was a top 10 pop record as a, you know, it wasn't just simply a country record. Uh, 
uh, Jim Reeves would have uh, a song that was both on the pop radio and country radio. And although uh, most of my time, because I became a, a music historian, uh, I finally felt like that I knew more about Nashville than I did the other. And I got a chance to meet Jim Reeves, uh, who uh, later got killed in a, an airplane crash, and his wife. And I had programmed a radio station in Mobile, Alabama, uh, to be a very popular radio station, playing nothing but country music. It's one of the first country, full-time country music stations in America. Uh, and in 1964, we had a number one uh, show. I was the number one personality in Mobile, Alabama on radio playing country music, although I had played rock and roll up until that period of time, you know, or a mix thereof, you know, I played a little Sinatra, a little Fats Domino and yada, yada, yada. Uh, but later on, I got to programming a station that played nothing but Buck Owens and people like that. And so I, I used to go to Nashville to a convention every year. And consequently, I got to meet a lot of the artists and and, and some of the, the, the celebrities and some of the uh, business people. And I met uh, Mary Reeves, Jim Reeves' widow, and she had a partner and they bought a station in the Nashville market. It was actually in a town of, called Murfreesboro, which is 35 miles south of Nashville. And uh, they knew I had done a pretty good job, I guess, of programming a station in Mobile, Alabama. And there were no WSM, which is known as the country music station of all time, did not play country music in the daytime. Hmm. They only played it midnight to six. And so there was there was one station uh, out in the hinterlands that played, uh, but it was just a daytime. So anyway, they wanted to just program country music on there, and they needed somebody to do it. So uh, I took the opportunity because. I really wanted to know a lot about the music business also, particularly the songwriting. I, I'm, I don't, when I write, I've only written two or three things by myself because I'm a lyricist. I'm a, I'm the guy that writes the words. I, I need to write with somebody who has a melodic structure. I have melodies in my head, but if you don't write or play, if you don't write music, it's hard to get that out. And I ain't about to let you hear me sing. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I guess, Intuitively, I, I wanted to go to Nashville and, and get in the music business. I never said that to anybody, uh, but I hung around as much as I could. I, I would go uh, from the little town I was in uh, to Nashville at night and have some drinks with some of the celebrities that were in the studios recording. And I got to hang around with the studios and see the actual recordings happening, which was an amazing thing for a, I was 30 years old, but I still thought I was a kid. Uh, my wife wasn't terribly excited about me staying out all night in some honky-tonk or in some studio, uh, especially when she was trying to raise three children, uh, but she understood. And so consequently, I got to know a lot of people and, and got a job for an organization called the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, uh, where we worked with songwriters. And so uh, that was an amazing trip, and I got a chance to start trying to write some songs. And uh, so I guess that one thing led to another. And 
uh, I got to, I went to work for CBS. Uh, they opened an office in Nashville, and and the song I became a song publisher, and I got a chance to meet new young writers and nurture them and help them get started, and, and so the rest was kind of history. While I was doing uh, all that in Nashville, we started something called Country Radio Seminar. Me and another guy now 51 years ago. And so I got a chance to stay connected to radio people. Uh, and I also did voice work. I've, over the years, I've I continued to do a lot of national commercials and things like that. I did, if you ever heard Lynn Anderson saying, things go better with Coca-Cola. And when somebody says that's, or that Lynn Anderson for Coca-Cola, that was my voice. <laughs> so, uh, and then I did a lot of political stuff in different markets. I had a friend of mine. It was a, so I'd stayed really close to radio. So I never really got out of radio, even though I was not in radio full time. And I knew all the radio people because they came to town every year to this country of seminar convention to find, you know, new ideas, concepts, new programming ideas, sales ideas. Uh, and then, Oh, almost 20 years ago, uh, a local radio station said, how would you like to do a morning show? And I went, oh, I'd love to. <laughs> well, I found out I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning. Ooh. And I did that for about a year before I shot myself. Uh, but while I was doing that, I got an opportunity. A friend of mine had taken over all the programming for Sirius XM. And he said, how would you like to do a consulting job for us? Because... I knew everybody in town and they wanted an open office. And so they hired me as a consultant. And then later on, they said, did you used to do radio? I said, yeah, 50 years ago. And they said, how would you like to do a show for us? Because you got all the stories, you know, all these people. And so I guess 17, 18 years ago, I started doing a, a satellite radio show, which uh, I tell everybody, and somebody said, I listen to you every now and then, Charlie. And I go, you and two little ladies in Utah. I got a massive crowd. And then I go, no, we have 30 million plus subscribers and only half of them listen to me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so again, you know, I, I can ramble all day about me. Tell me about you. <laughs> well, uh, I, I can tell you one thing about me. One time I was going through Mobile, Alabama, and I had contacted this gentleman who you have actually written a song, maybe more than one song, Milton L. Brown. And it was, yeah. I remember it was, it, it was obscenely late at night. It was very late. And uh, I told him that I had this wish to interview him. And he said, well, if you would be interested in having the worst cup of coffee you've ever had in your life, please come into Bama Boy Productions. And so I'm curious to know about your songwriting relationship with Milton Brown and this song that has come out all these years later that Randy Travis recorded. Well, again, I worked in Mobile for 10 years in radio and television there, and Milton and I, he wanted to be in, in the music business. Now, Milton is, uh, <laughs> first, he's Jewish which is not, I never really, there's not a lot of Jewish cowboys. Uh, and so we became friends in the theater. I was involved in 
acting in the theater in Mobile. And we became, and so I dubbed him a Hebrew hillbilly because <laughs> he was the worst singer I've ever heard. He, but he loved country. I, when, he, when I say he loved country music, he loved Loretta Lynn and Ernest Tubb. And, and when I was first in Mobile, I was playing rock and roll and I was really trying to get into Sam Cooke and, and oh, great uh, Andy uh, Williams and people like that. Uh, because there were great songs coming out. So anyway, he sent me a tape of, he just wanted me to hear of him singing a country song, and it was the worst thing I have ever heard. But anyway, he sent it to Nashville, and guess who recorded it? Loretta Lynn and Ernest Tubb, which proved to him I was wrong. <laughs> uh, and we stayed friends. We worked together on some uh, musical projects there with Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett was a protege of mine and Milton's uh, because uh, again, he was a mobile boy and he sang in the saloons and stuff. Matter of fact, a, a quick Jimmy Buffett story. I used to work till about uh, five or seven o'clock at the radio station. And Jimmy did a, a, a sit down gig. We call it at a, at a bar that's in a hotel in uh, mobile. And I would go by there on the way home and get a beer and I went in there one night and sat down and uh, and Jimmy was on the stand singing his heart out. And I, I actually moved up to the bar because there was nobody in in the uh, the venue. And so so I said to the bartender, I said, this is awful because Jimmy probably was working for tips uh, at that time. And I said, he said, well, yeah, we don't have a lot of people here. He said, uh, but. The room service is wonderful. I'm selling more booze than I've ever sold in my, than I've ever sold in my life. He said, "We've got the Alabama Baptist Convention in the hotel, that nobody was going to see Jimmy. So I'm the only person that ever got a paid concert for Jimmy Buffett all by myself. But nobody knew who he was at the time. Uh, but Milton and I worked with him, and uh, we recorded some other local people." And Milton wrote most of the songs. I didn't try to write any songs necessarily. But uh, but, but Milton, I, I suggested he move to Nashville after I did. Uh, but he and his wife both are native mobilians. Their families were there. Uh, his wife was actually a, a Mardi Gras queen one year. So I called her Queenie. Uh, and But he didn't want to move to Nashville. He would come to Nashville and bring his songs and pitch them. But he'd always come visit with me when he'd come to town. So uh, by that time I'd started writing songs and I had this idea, this real honky-tonk idea, or real country idea. Uh, and Milton came to town and although I've never, I've helped people with their songs, but I never became part of the writing because my job as a publisher, my job was to help them. But if I had started a song and written most of it myself and asked somebody to be part of it, then it became a collaborative effort. And I became one of the writers. And I had this idea called Fool's Love Affair that I had written pretty much the whole first verse and, and some of the chorus. And Milton came to town. And, and I told him the idea. I said, would you like to work with me on this? He said, yes, sounds like a good idea. And so we were working on it. And then I was working with one of the top writers in town, a guy named Keith Stegall, who became a huge record producer. He produces all of Milo Jack. Uh, uh, with uh, Alan Jackson 
and Zach Brown, and he produced George Jones and Merle Haggard. Uh, but he was was a su very successful songwriter. And he came walking through the building. We were in a room in, a, in, in my publishing company and said, would you like to join us? So he sat down with us and we wrote it, uh, well, 38 years ago. <laughs> and I was working with this young kid in town who was singing at a honky-tonk, the Nashville Palace. His name was Randy. Actually, his name is Randy Bruce Trawick was his real name. And he had taken the name Randy Ray. Uh, and he was working at this honky-tonk, and we were trying to get him a record deal, who uh, ultimately became Randy Travis. And we had used him to sing demos, and we needed a real country voice for this demo. So we got Randy. To, we hired him. We had, it was just something he did, sang demos. And he sang the demo, but uh, the lyric was a little, uh, a little senior for him. It was about sleeping around or having a – Fool's Love Affair the afternoon, and he was quite young. So it wasn't suitable for him after he got his record deal to, to record, but we did have the demo uh, that he had sung. And so, you know, and, and nobody, people just weren't singing traditional country songs at that time. So we never got it recorded by anybody else. Uh, but to make a long story short, I had a cassette of it. And, um, so I had uh, taken it to his producer and I said, because Randy can't sing anymore. And I said, you know, it might be something that they might want to upgrade and, uh, and release at some point in time. And, and he said, Charlie, he said, it sounds like a cassette. If you had the, the multi-track, which was the big tape that we had recorded the original multi-track on, but I didn't know where it's, 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 it, it was 38 years ago. I didn't have the slightest idea where it was. All I had was literally a cassette. And I'd played it a few times on my radio show because Randy's a superstar. He's an all the fame. And, and it sounded like Randy. So his fans loved it. But, you know, they no, we couldn't get it released. But I uh, was moving some boxes one day. I, it took me. I, I looked for that box with, with those masters on it for about three years, which is about the same length of time it took me to get Randy Travis a record deal. And I bumped a box one day and it fell over and a box fell out. It didn't have Randy Travis written on the box, but it did have the title of the song written on the box. Mm. Totally accidental. It'd been hidden for over 35 years. So I took it over to Randy's record producer he listened. He said, you know, I, I can do something with this because now he had all the situation. He could add, subtract. He could put voices on it. And he did. And when it came out, it sounded like it was recorded yesterday. And it was exactly what people loved about Randy, that voice of his. And the song was damn good because three great writers wrote it. <laughs> we said that. Uh, and we worked with some people and got it released. And it's still being played now. It's not. It's not what's happening today, uh, but it's. If you're a traditional uh, country music fan, uh, you can find it on YouTube's or iTunes and you know, on you know, SiriusXM or Pandora, or all of the streaming stuff. It's called Food's Love Affair. So go out and look. Go out and buy a copy. I need some Christmas money. <laughs>
It is a great song. Absolutely. Anyway, Milton, to make a long story short, Milton was quite surprised that I found it, uh, too. And he, but he was tickled to death. Was Milton, neither Milton nor I are just beginners. And so we're, you know, kind of sitting on our booty kind of guys uh, in the music business. And to have a song at my age that's been out, that excuse been recorded for 38 years, to be released as a single record by a superstar, that's pretty amazing. I'll, t- I'll, I'll just bask in that if I can. Absolutely. <laughs> it's definitely a very cool story. I'm curious to know, because you have met so many people in the entertainment business. We're I met Frank, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> you, you met Frank Sinatra? I have a picture of me and Frank. Oh, wow. I, I was his guest in Vegas after I met him. So you, I, you, when you say everybody, to me, that was everybody. I yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, yeah. I had Larry King. He told me, I asked him if he was a music fan, and he said, Put me down as Sinatra and then the world. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm a huge country fan. I mean, some of my Merle Haggard is just, I adore him. I, uh, George Jones, to me, they are authentic. People ask me often, and I'll, and you, you ask me a question, we'll get back to it. But people often ask me, uh, Charlie, how do you know somebody's going to be a star? or a success in, in the entertainment. You don't. You, you're just mesmerized by their authenticity. And I finally just decided to start using that word. Johnny Cash was Johnny Cash. That's all he was. That's all. Frank Sinatra Frank Sinatra. That's all he was. Meaning they did. When Sinatra decided to become an actor, he was authentic about it. And so to me, a, a songwriter or anybody, a painter, even a painter, I, I like to paint. But I'm not a painter, and that's why I'm not successful at it. My daughter has a degree in art. She's authentic about it. And I think you just it's, it's more from the soul than it is. I, I, a lot of writers ask me questions. I say, well, you know, when it comes to writing, God gives you the talent. Life gives you the lines, and you enhance it by working at a craft. That's how you become a successful songwriter. You got to start with the talent. Hmm. You know, it's like singing. Now, singing is one thing, but entertaining is a whole other thing. You know, some of my favorite singers I've heard at church that never became big. Same thing with actors. I was in the theater for a long time. And some of my favorite actors of all time were lawyers and doctors because it's what they loved to do. They were authentic with their medicine or whatever else, but they love everything. So, and people will say, Charlie, I want you to listen to a song. Tell me what you think. I'll go, what do you think? Well, I don't know anything about it. You know whether you like it or not. Let's start with that. If you don't like it, don't make me listen to the damn thing. You know? <laughs> it, if you thought just because they sing doesn't mean it's good. I have a friend of mine that loves Shakespeare, and he watches public television all the time. And I tell him, just because it's they're speaking in a British dialect does not mean that they're Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to ask me a question. I interrupted you two minutes ago. Oh, uh, not necessarily the person that you were the most in awe of, but 
of all the people that you encountered through the years, who would you say has been the nicest? Mm, well, you know, it, it really is interesting because, you, like I said, they may not be the biggest stars or, or things like that. Uh, but um, probably I would put Minnie Pearl on that ladder. Uh, the, the singers, uh, Jim Reeves, uh, just when you come to genuinely nice, nice people. Uh, Garth Brooks, people tend to say, you know, I don't like him. He's too arrogant or, you know, he, well, he's, he's damn good at what he does, but he is uh, the nicest, unassuming guy on a one-on-one -on -one conversation. He's not one of those guys that stops, hey, Charlie, how you doing? And looking to see somebody else to talk to. He stops and talks to you. He's authentic. Uh, Randy Travis. Uh, was another one. Of course, I've known Randy since he was literally a kid and basically a kid singing in a honky tonk. Uh, but uh, Dottie West, uh, Reba, uh, Taylor Swift, but I've known her since she's 14 years old. So, you know, uh, having seen some of them grow up and some of them do change because their job gets tougher and tighter. People think, the richer you get, the more famous you get, things are easier. That's a myth. It's actually harder in order to maintain it. Now you can let it go and let it fall apart, but in order to maintain, and if you ain't maintaining it, you ain't moving. If you ain't moving, you're standing still. Hmm. So uh, just genuine people, uh, you know, Dick Clark was one of those people. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, most of the people that I really feel like that were the most accessible were also the busiest. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there are exceptions to all of that. Okay, so keep that in mind. But, uh, and, and it still happens. Keith Urban is still, uh, he hasn't changed one iota. Uh, I'm going to drop a name. I have his cell phone number. Quite accidentally, uh, I was honored at an event one night that he was also going to speak at, and uh, he was the closing event where he was going to perform. And uh, so I was backstage, and he was back there getting uh, interviewed and cameras flashing. And so he left. He did leave those people for a minute. He said he ran over to me and hugged me. He said, "Congratulations, Charlie." And I said, oh, I said, thank you. And he said for me, he said, hey, let's get a selfie. Well, I thought he meant me take a selfie of me and him. Well, he didn't mean that. He wanted to take a selfie. He wanted to take a selfie of me and him. And, and of course, guess who wanted to copy that? Me, right? Well, <laughs> he said, hey, I'll send this to you later. About 1 o'clock the next morning, I got that selfie from his cell phone and saying, thanks for this. I mean, you can imagine, I, I, you know, I just, I was still awake and I, I didn't sleep anymore that night to, to think that a man who is a worldwide superstar that wanted to have the, the, the picture, 
and then take it. And remember, not forget the fact that he, remember to send me a copy of it. <laughs> well, if that shows you what kind, he's that way all the time. Though. Now, well, the last thing he said, he said, John, you never change. And I think that is an extreme compliment because I think he never changes. Hmm. So when you think about all these experiences that you've had communicating with so many people, being on something like Sirius XM and being able to reach the masses, what would you say that that has taught you? Well, well, two things. The more notoriety that you get, and I've been around long enough to develop some of that, is you do have to figure out how to be, uh, develop some humility and thank God for all your blessings. That's, that's a start. But Vince Gill taught me. So, oh, by the way, there's another great one. Vince Gill, I don't know why I forgot that. Same way, he came and spoke to my Sunday school class one day. And he told the class, he said, I remember meeting Charlie Monk 26 years ago. And I didn't remember it, but he did. But anyway, uh, but he taught me something. He uh, is in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And he got in there at 50 years old. And a lot of people tended to think that was a little young. That They seemed to think everybody ought to be old and decrepit and crawling around on the floor. Uh, and so I asked him about it. I said, how do you feel about the rumble? He said, well... And he's, he's a very confident human being. Vince, he's a world-class guitarist, good world-class singer. He can do, he's an athlete. I mean, <laughs> he's a uh, great go scratch golfer. Uh, but he, uh, he said, well, he said, if they voted for me because I was popular, he said, oh, that's not terribly exciting. He said, he said that, um, he said, but I thought I had a body of work. He said, you know, I'd had a number of number one records. I'd written songs for other people. I've sung on everybody's records and I've played on everybody's records. And I thought I had. He didn't say these words, but he gave me the word. He basically said, that, he said, I'm the best Vince Gill in town. And so I learned from him to whatever humility I might have. And, and I jest a lot. So people think I'm kind of goofy, which is OK if they remember. Uh, that I didn't screw them out of anything. I didn't lie to them. I didn't hurt them physically. Uh, that I'm the best Charlie Monk in town. And I'm a very good Charlie Monk. It took me a lot of years to get to that point, I can tell you that. I always felt that if somebody said something nice to me or complimented me, I never felt kind of worthy of that. I felt like this is pretty simple for me because I love it. Why are they applauding me or, or complimenting me, you know? God gave me this talent, whatever that is. Uh, now, I, sometimes somebody says, if you go to a party, don't look for Charlie Monk. Look for a photographer and you'll find Charlie Monk, you know. So, so you know, I don't get any attaboys. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I uh, was nominated for uh, the National Radio Personality of the Year two years in a row. And, and uh Nobody gave me an attaboy about it. They gave me really crap. Who'd you pay off, Charlie, to get that? You know, it's just, and then I was honored the Nashville Tennessean, which is a major newspaper, did a front page story on me about a year ago, as a matter of fact. 
And I knew they were going to do it, and I knew they were going to put it in the paper. So I thought it would be maybe six or eight, ten inches on you know, page six with one photo. Well, it was the entire front of the Nashville, Tennessean, and I didn't know it was going to do it. And I walked into Corbin's grocery store, and there were 50 of them stacked up on the, on the floor there. And Charlie Monk is in 50 newspapers right there in my face. And it was, let me tell you something, it was a little embarrassing. But again, same thing happened to me. I had to go to a meeting that day and nobody was, hey, Charlie, that's good. They went, man, I am, I'm dropping that newspaper. They had, you know, I mean, they just give me stuff, stuff. So I have to be able to take that pretty easily, you know. I would have loved to have gone up to Charlie, that is a wonderful story about you. It's a great picture. Uh, you got to be really famous. Nobody said that to me. All my friends put me down, laughed at it. <laughs> so how would you define Charlie Monk? Cute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think there's a, I'm a, I, I am a, Fairly confident guy, limited education, hard worker, uh, uh, been married to the same woman for, uh, you know, over 60 years. The only thing we have in common, we were both married on the same day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have four beautiful children and they are beautiful. They're all beautiful, uh, educated and talented I have nine grandchildren, same box. They're all just wonderful. And I have two great-grandchildren. I'm a good, I'm, I'm, I'm a lousy husband. I've been a lousy husband, meaning um, I probably spent too much time working. And uh, thank God I had a wife that just took charge and, and did what was necessary to raise the four children. Of course, they all speak to her. They don't speak to me. <laughs> That's not true. Let me erase that. Uh, but, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm in church every Sunday. Now I'm Zoomed or whatever. Uh, I, I've never, I pay my bills. Uh, uh, I, I check on my family. Uh, and I'm, I'm not, those are not bragging statements. Those are just things I want to do. In other words, I'm not, I've not been burdened with anything. I had two broken legs at one time in high school football. That was first jolt. I had open heart surgery three years ago with five bypasses. That was pretty much a jolt. Uh, and so, and I've lost about 25 pounds. Uh, and so by virtue of surgery, I've lost my sense of taste and sense of smell. So sometimes I wonder, am I getting paid back for all those bad things? I did? <laughs> <laughs> I always like at the end of the interview, I just give the guest the stage. We're living in a, a very interesting time, but in closing, what would you say to anybody who's watching? Well, first, I hope they wear their mask. Uh, I think you're very foolish if you don't. Even if you don't want to, and even if you don't think you should, the people in charge thinking 
if it saves your life or saves somebody else's life, I think you should. And that's not political at all. I, I don't want to get off on politics, but uh, I think that we do. Everybody needs to vote. I think, I think voting is the greatest privilege we have in America. And I think that you should exercise that. I used to say, I think you should lose your citizenship if you don't. Hmm. But because I think it's important, I don't think you have any rights to say anything if you don't vote. And I've even changed my mind about it. I think you have a right to do anything. I think you have a right to be stupid. I think you have a right to be wrong. Uh, There's prices you pay. I don't think that any child should be abused in any form, physically or sexually. Uh, I, I think women should be respected. I married a woman who taught me that, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've had some female, I've actually had male secretaries, or now they're called assistants. Uh, and you know, anybody that, any person that ever worked for me will tell you I was fair uh, when, I, when I ran companies. I made sure that they were paid equitably, uh, you know, and when I had my own thing, I paid them what I could pay them. And I told them that I, I let them, I let them see the books, you know? Uh, so I guess I'm a fair guy. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be around for a, a lot longer, uh, but I'm ready to go. I'm just no hurry. Um, uh, I, I just, I, I'm a showbiz groupie. I love show business. I love hanging around with, with talented people. Uh, they move my soul. Uh, I love music specifically because I think that, I think had I taken the time to learn to play an instrument and I challenge every parent to make sure that their child gets a musical education of some kind so that at least they can appreciate music because it is the communication for the world. Uh, but uh, I'm a happy man. Um, I, you, the little times we've chatted. And I want to also say that I bumped into you by bumping into your podcast one day. And uh, you had Alan Reynolds on there who uh, doesn't talk, only talks to God because he doesn't talk to anybody else. And probably is the most, one of the most successful human beings ever in Nashville. And I guarantee he won't be three people out of 10 will know his name. Hmm. Great songwriter, great record producer, an amazing conversationalist, if you can get him to talk. He proved that. I, I listened to your, by the way, it was the only podcast I ever listened to through its entirety. Wow. That's a huge compliment. No, it was uh, accidental. Accidental. You know, I remember when you, you said something about that. That was, that really, that was a, a really touching thing for me when I heard that you had listened to it. Thank you for listening. Well, I mean, what you said, I was in, or what you asked and he answered, I was interested. And both of you told it eloquently. Uh, And I thought, well, now that's what a podcast needs to be. Uh, I guess again, you have the right to, sit there and you know, bellow your opinions about everything if you want to, but I don't have to sit and listen to it. You guys, uh, I, I don't know how you identify yourself as an entertainment uh, news person or whatever 
you think you are uh, that day. You were a, you were a news person. You were an interviewer to me. You were a conversationalist, and it was all about the music business or about Alan in the music business. And people don't know who he was. He produced all of Al of uh, well of, of Garth Brooks's records and uh, oh everybody else. Uh, Crystal Gale. I could go and I'm gonna miss a few, but. Uh, he's done a bunch of them and just, and a great songwriter. People forget that. Too. Oh yeah. Five o'clock world. So many. Yeah. Well, Charlie Monk, thank you so much. No. Hey, this, this didn't cost me anything. Normally they cost me money. Remember somebody's going to hear this and say, I can walk up to him. I heard you on Paul Leslie. How much you pay him? Charlie Monk. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Written by Irving Berlin. Performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things. Improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.